Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Lewis Dartnell on how the Earth made us in his new book, Origins. Lewis Dartnell is a professor of science communication at the University of Westminster. He has won several awards for his science writing and contributes to The Guardian, The Times and The New Scientist. He has also written for television and appeared on BBC Horizon, Sky News, Wonders of the Universe, Stargazing Live and The Sky at Night. His previous books include the bestseller The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Our World from Scratch, which you may remember we talked about in the previous Little Atoms, and his latest book, Origins, How the Earth Made Us, we're going to talk about today. Lewis, welcome back to the It looks like you've got a press release out in front of you and you just read the blurb. <laughs> it's very nice of you to have done so, though. Thank you. Um, what's the idea behind Origins, first of all? <laughs> so the general concept, that the kind of guiding principle behind the book, was to look at all the different ways that features of the Earth as, as, a, as a kind of a planet have uh, influenced the human story. So everything from our literal origins, our evolution in East Africa, all the way to the very beginnings of agriculture and the very first civilizations and cities through modern history and even up to, you know, kind of politics and, and elections in just the last couple of years. And and all the different ways that the earth has influenced and, and affected and directed um, that story, that narrative. And in what way is this sort of a companion piece to the knowledge so it is. It, it's it's not entirely clear. It doesn't it doesn't kind of clamour that really. Um, but my last book, the knowledge, it was a conceit. It was a thought experiment on how you could reboot civilization from scratch after after some kind of hypothetical apocalypse. So in a sense, it was it didn't have anything to do with, with doomsday in the world. It was just a way of of peering behind the curtains of the modern world and asking just how stuff works, where it comes from, how things are made. So what were the important scientific discoveries? and technological inventions that enabled us to go from 10,000 BC and huddling in caves to the modern world of antibiotics and electricity. So it was all about the kind of human invention and human ingenuity in making our world. And what I wanted to do for the new book, for Origins, was to kind of step back even further and look at uh, history in the grandest possible terms and how the Earth has been involved in that story, how the planet we live in is almost like a character in the play alongside humanity as, as a species. So let's uh, go back to the evolution of our own species mm. then. So, you know, the, the first sort of 
you know, hominids that start to stand on two feet in yeah. the African Rift Valley. What is it about that particular part of the world that made it the, the correct environment, you know, the, the suitable environment for us, to, for us to evolve? And also, you know, why was it geologically so special? Well, so in, in, the, in the broadest brushstrokes, what needs to happen to turn, you know, kind of forest-dwelling, tree-swinging apes into bipedal, walking upright, intelligent, naked apes like like humans was the whole region of East Africa dried out. And in and, and, and general terms, it went from forest to grasslands and, and a whole series of evolutionary adaptations in our kind of evolutionary line responded to that. But it was more than that. There was something specific and something quite weird that was going on in, in kind of planetary terms in East Africa in the last five million years or so that... that Diverged away from the chimpanzees and created such such an eloquently talkative and intelligent tool using animal that, that is ourselves. And you've alluded to what, what it was already, and it's, it's, it's the Rift Valley. And what happened, there was a, a big plume of magma has been rising up beneath the plate of Africa, and it's kind of swollen up, it's kind of pushed up the crust in this big zit. And that's been largely what's been drying out. East Africa, because East Africa lies in the same band of the earth as, you know, the rainforests of, of Indonesia and of the Amazon. So it, it ought to be very wet and, and, and pre-forested. But the Rift Valley kind of tore open as this crack, this rift in the crust. And it was the interaction between the landscape of that Rift Valley. We have these high ridges of mountains on either side, but a very hot, low-lying valley floor that amplified the effects of little fluctuations, little variations in the Earth's climate as our orbit shifted slightly or the kind of Earth's axis tilted in uh, what are known as Milankovitch cycles. And the availability of water in, in that valley floor, particularly around these what are known as amplifier lakes, fluctuated severely. It was a huge effect from a very small, subtle influence. And it's that that's thought to have, have, have driven intelligence and, and smartness in our hominin uh, lineage. Uh, that then we went on to make kind of tools and, and, and invent conversation. Um, I just wanted to you just mentioned the Milankovitch cycle, yeah. but also what's going on with the Earth is, as you said, you know, it's sort of orbiting the sun and different angles and stuff. And there's various cycles of ice ages. Um, I, you know, the Earth has an ice age, then it thaws. You know, there's a, there's a warmer period. Yeah, there's another ice age. What effect is that having? Yeah, so the ice ages. Um, predominantly affect the um, high latitudes, so the very north, uh, so you know across Siberia, North America, Europe, or the very south around the kind of um, you know, kind of like Chile land uh, uh, sits in, in South America today. So that's in the in the high latitudes, the, the bits near the poles during the ice age, they get very cold, they get very icy. That kind of makes sense. Um, but around the tropics, around the equator, these Milankovitch cycles don't don't cause iciness because you're still warm relatively, but it does have a, a profound effect on the availability of, of water. And, and, and that's why these, those Milankovitch cycles are important for our evolution. But they're also, these same cosmic cycles were instrumental in the next chapter, um, both of the human story and literally of Origins, the book, which was, okay, fine, we, we were crafted as this intelligent species in East Africa, but... Nowadays, we're one of the most um, widely spread animal species on the planet. And that happened about 65, 70,000 years ago, where we, we just kind of upped and left. We migrated. We dispersed out of East Africa, across Eurasia, up into Europe, around into the Americas. 
And what enabled us to do that was, was as you say, was, was the ice ages. Every time the Earth kind of uh, slides into one of these glacial periods, these you know, kilometres thick uh, sheets of ice form over the north northern regions, and that sucks up a lot of water out of the seas, the sea levels drop, and these land bridges get, get exposed. That you, you can literally walk from Eurasia, uh, from the kind of uh, far eastern side of, of Eurasia, right across the Bering Land Bridge into the Americas. Now, what was special about us, about Homo sapiens, is that previous hominin species, pre- previous human species, did migrate all the way across Eurasia. So Homo erectus got as far as kind of China. But we were the only human species to, to ever have made it to the Americas. When Homo sapiens dispersed slowly across the Bering land bridge and, 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 and walked into Americas, we were the first hominin species to tread in the Americas. And then we became this kind of global, world-spanning species in that, in that process. And obviously, you just mentioned that, you know, Homo erectus got all the way to China um, and then, for whatever reason, died out. But also, like, you know, Neanderthals, yeah. the Denisovan yeah. hominids also basically had these. So why why was the, the later wave more successful? It, it is a really good question. It's something that a lot of paleontologists and anthropologists are trying to kind of figure out. Why is it that... Why are we a lonely species? Why are we the only hominins to survive, to, to, to have made it into the modern world. And importantly, why were we able to outcompete the Denisovans or the Neanderthals? Because the Neanderthals, they were like burly, bulky hominins. They, they were physically stronger than us, and yet we seem to have been able to outcompete them. And it, and it seems to be the case that we beat them with, with our brains, not, not with brawn. And we were probably better able to adapt to the changing conditions within the height of the Ice Age in, in Europe when Neanderthals were, were focused and we kind of inherited the Earth from them. And what was probably the reason for that is that we had spent longer in that fluctuating, unstable environment of East Africa than Neanderthals who had left earlier. So it was almost like we had more training at, at, at becoming adaptable and versatile and therefore, when we move from the warm environment, warm and dry environment of Africa to the cold environment of Ice Age Europe, we're able to you know, kind of use those transferable skills. I sound like a middle management guy now. We're able to use, as a species, we're able to use those transferable skills to, to kind of outcompete the Neanderthals and, and take, over, take over the world. But this wasn't, I mean, this sort of migration of, of the species out of Africa... They didn't, you know, stick a, a flag in a map and say, you know, we'll go. It's getting crowded here. Let's go somewhere else where there's probably land. This is like a very gradual. Yeah, exactly. So it, it out. It's not like there was this front, this 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 packed line of Homo sapiens kind of furrowing their brow as they leaned towards the horizon and strove out for new lands. But it was the case that they were essentially feeling, oh, it's a bit crowded here. Let's move on. So this this was a a dispersal and you know we were still hunter gatherers back there so we were, were hunting whatever antelope species or ungulate species were in the local environment and when our population started booming people would, would kind of move a bit away from the edges and kind of colonize new lands and, and, and disperse in these very slow moving waves so it took tens of thousands of years to, to colonize the world but but it was the ice ages the ice age the most recent ice age that enabled us to do that you, you alluded to this a little bit. The, the ice ages are also having, they're obviously having an effect on the climate, of course, if you, you know, live in Greenland or whatever. But as you mentioned, in, in Africa as well, the fact that, you know, a lot of the 
ocean waters are being you know transferred into ice um it affects things like ocean currents and things yeah. it affects the you know water in the atmosphere as well so it has a a distinct climatic change yeah absolutely and and the ice ages are i guess the most the most obvious most conspicuous ramification of these of these Milankovitch cycles but there are fluctuations in earth's climate over not just recorded history but but over the long history of of, of civilization and the Sahara Desert used to be green, it used to be grasslands. The, there's cave paintings in what is now wind-blown sand, and sorry, uh, rock paintings that, that clearly depict like crocodiles and gazelle. And so the Sahara dried out. It was green and it became hyper-arid like it is today. And one idea as to what might have been the main factor for driving the emergence of, of civilization in ancient Egypt, i.e. along the Nile Valley, was essentially climate refugees getting out of the Saharan region as it dried out and that driving up kind of population density and then forcing people to become a bit more intense of their agriculture and living together in, in, in villages and in towns than the kind of early cities. So it was probably a, a climate change, a climate shift driven by these Milankovitch cycles that, that caused us to civilise, as again, as, as a peoples. And moving on a bit to when we do start to you know develop agriculture and particularly to start to settle down, in cities, this starts to happen particularly along an area called the Fertile Crescent, mm. um, Mesopotamia, and that, again, sort of geographically, is in a particularly like unique environment. Yes, there's I redrew this map, so all of the the figures, all of the pictures and in, in origins, um, are mostly kind of maps and, and kind of cartography that I've done myself. I spent far too long, let's be honest, working out, learning how to use the software to create my own maps with the different data sets that I wanted to show. And one of the maps I show is um, a map of, of, of the world with the, the boundaries between the tectonic plates. So basically these cracks in Earth's crust, these fractures, and this really strong correlation just leaps out of you when you look at that map and show the points of origin of some of the earliest civilizations around the world. And they are all clustered along these plate boundaries. And so the question is, plate boundaries are, are, are like rubbish places to be. They're, 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 they, that's where the volcanoes are. That's where the volcanoes and uh, earthquakes uh, shake. So why would the early civilizations have been kind of attracted there, as it were? One of the answers is clearest when you look at Mesopotamia, the, the land between the rivers, between the Tigris and Euphrates. And that entire region is, is, is very full of um, lovely, fertile, silty soil. It's alluvial soil, soil deposited by those, by those rivers that's been eroded up by the mountains to the north. And what created that region of Mesopotamia is the, the, the block of Arabia is on its own plate, its own tectonic plate. And it's been essentially swinging away, pivoting away from Africa. And recently, in, in geological terms, recently slammed into the bottom half of Eurasia to crumple up the Zagros mountain ranges. And so when you've got this great big heavy mountain range that kind of crust the ground alongside it, sags down a bit, and so that's where the river flows, that's where the silt and, and, and sediment gets deposited, and that's what makes this lovely rich region that makes agriculture easy. So Mesopotamia is a tectonic trough, and then humans first settled down there in, in the origins of cities and also in the Indus Valley which is basically exactly the same setting but in the foots than the, the feet of, of the Himalayas mountain. I want to carry on talking about early agriculture but before we do just a, a couple of other things that uh, occurred when the ice was melting from the from the, sort of the mm. last great ice age and particularly um, I wanted to talk about the 
the land bridge that basically occurred between that, that existed between the UK and the, <laughs> the English yes. Channel, basically the UK and France, and what happened there. Yeah, so there's what I've tried to do throughout Origins is weave together these kind of threads of of science and geology and, and earth and earth sciences with history and what happened in, in the human story and, and why. And one of the main stories, well, clearly for us, because we're living in Britain, but, but for European history as a whole, is that you have continental Europe, but then this island of Britain, which has been important through history, because in many periods of, of European history, it's been this island fortress which has stopped anyone consolidating an empire across Europe. So Hitler was unable to invade Britain and kind of win the war in Europe. Before that, it was the Spanish. Before that, it was kind of the French. And so the question is, why was Britain an island then? Because looking at the geology, we used to be linked, like kind of Siamese twins, like co-joined twins to Europe, by um, what's known as the Wild Artois Anticline. So the, the White Cliffs of Dover are basically the stump left behind when this great big bridge of rock was eroded away, was washed away in, in, a, in a catastrophic mega flood. So some of the words I just love when I was coming across and researching the origins, and mega flood was one of my favorites. And this great big, huge flood of, of water very rapidly eroded away that, that block of rock that was connecting us uh, to Europe. And what had happened is that during an ice age, not the most recent ice age, but in fact one about four or five ice age cycles ago, it's about half a million years in the past, um, two great sheets of ice met each other over what is now the North Sea and trapped this great big lake of meltwater, which kind of burst its banks, essentially, and this entire thing emptied in, in the blink of an eye and then, and then roded away that, that the Dover Straits. So it, it's again, it's the Ice Age and one of the effects of the Ice Age that's created Britain as an island and therefore that rich interplay throughout European history of, of Britain as an island and the rest of continental Europe. And we know that because of the basically the bottom of that. Yeah, straight. so there's there's I mean you can you can go to the, the bibliography of, of, of origins and look up the paper that I've cited and look it up on Google Scholar. And there's there's been some beautiful papers in the last couple of years where they've taken um sonar equipment out on boats and got these incredibly high resolution pictures of what the, the seafloor looks like um, in the English Channel or La Manche as the French would call it. And like clear as day. There are these great big valleys gouged out in the rock by this mega flood. There are the plunge pools by um, these enormous waterfalls that would have been plunging over the over the over the land bridges that was at first eroding, um, and these kind of islands that have been eroded into almost kind of streamlined shapes, vast islands eroded in streamlined shapes by that by that mega flood. So since the ice, the last age, ice ages has thawed, the sea levels have, have risen again, and it's now a drowned landscape. It's now underwater. But you can really clearly see where that mega flood had caused to, to create us as an island. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Lewis Dartnell and we're talking about his latest book, Origins, How the Earth Made Us. And Lewis, I said I wanted to go back to, to agriculture and right across the world, almost, you know, simultaneously and, you know, as far as simultaneously works in geological <laughs> time or in history, and people started to, you know, settle down and start to started to grow crops and obviously you know in in the far east it was rice and in you know mesoamerica it was corn but in eurasia around that you know fertile crescent the list of crops is endless again you know what was it what was unique about that area that meant there were you know there were so many grasses that were basically developed into so i think that in itself is is something that's worth kind of lingering on for just a second that all of humanity, through all of our history and all the all the kind of history of civilizations, we basically fed ourselves on three main crops, three staples: the maize in, in, in the Americas, wheat across Eurasia, and and rice in, in the kind of further east. And all of those staple crops, all of those cereals, are species of grass. So you, me, everyone else alive today, everyone throughout history basically fed themselves on grass in just the same way that the sheep or, or goats or cows that we keep out pasture do. And the reason that we have chosen to eat grass, the reason we domesticated those wild species, is that ecologically, grass species, they, they kind of live fast and die young. They grow quickly. They dump all of the energy they can absorb out of the sunlight into their grain, which which are botanically fruit. They, they put all that energy into these little dollops of grain, which is the rice or the, or the sweet corn, which then is very easy for us to harvest and kind of store and then come back to eat later. So we've we've kind of hacked the biological reproduction mechanism of, of grass species to, to feed ourselves and then found all these civilizations through history. And one of the main distinctions between people living in Eurasia and people living in the Americas, which then had huge knock-on effects throughout, throughout history, was that just through chance, Eurasia seems to have had a, a wider range of, of cereal crops, of these grass species that could have been domesticated compared to the Americas. And also that Eurasia is largely in an east-west constant. So it's easy to move things across the same line of latitude without encountering different climates. So rice can be spread, wheat can be spread across Eurasia. Whereas in the Americas, moving maize or other crops north or south along the, the, the kind of vertical orientation of the Americas was much harder. And Gerald Diamond has pointed this out in, in his cracking book, Gun Germ Steel. That simple fact, just about the orientation of the continents, when the supercontinent of Pangaea broke apart, 
has had huge implications through, through the passage of history. Um, I wanted to talk about, you took in the book about the domestication of animals and, you know, obviously from the hunter-gatherers started to tame, you know, live alongside dogs and to obviously, you know, the, the animals that we um, both, you know, domesticate for food, for, for meat, but also for, you know, milk and yeah. wool and things. Um, but I wanted to talk about particularly about uh, human beings' gradual effect as we spread out on again another great word the megafauna. <laughs> it is oh it is another good it's all it's all the mega words. Yeah, so we, we mentioned already about how it was the the last ice age and the lower sea levels enabled us to to spread around the world and particularly colonize into Australia and, and the Americas. And looking at the fossils, looking at the story that's been kind of kept in in the, in the rocks. In, in most cases, as soon as humans rocked up, turned up, the megafauna just disappeared. They, they, they died out. And what we think had happened is that humans had just got very, very good at hunting in Africa as hunter-gatherers and then spreading out. And so when, when uh, the megafauna, so kind of large species that, that had previously had no natural predators, when we turned up with stone tools and spears, the, the megafauna just kind of didn't know what to do. They had, they had no uh, survival strategy, no evolutionary reason to, to fear humans. And we essentially hunted them into extinction. So in a sense, this was an early warning of kind of the human dominion that we wiped out all of megafauna to, to eat. And we've now developed more and more sophisticated tools, more and more sophisticated technologies. And we're now marshalling the kind of energy resources and, and natural resources of the planet to such an extent that we're changing the environment of the whole world. People are familiar with global warming and, and things like that. But, but that whole process started you know, thousands of years ago as we were first colonising the world and, and hunting stuff to extinction. Um, I want to talk about the, the Himalayas. And I think most people know how relatively young the Himalayas as a, as a range is. And this is sort of caused by, you know, what is now India crashing into... Yeah. Crashing again is not quite strictly the right word, but you know, very, 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 very slow motion crash. crashing, like that bit in Austin into Powers the, with um, the steamroller into the sort of supercontinent and basically pushing up that that mountain range, and that has an effect, obviously climactically, you know, monsoons and things, and you know, it, but and, and obviously linked to that as well is is how vital that Tibetan plateau is, basically. To water, to just you know the, the water supply of, of that entire continent. Yeah, so it's it's, it's I guess quite a big question because it has lots of things that link into each other, and that that was the main thing I was trying to get across with origins was was all these deep connections lying beneath the surface that that link what you would have thought would be kind of completely unrelated topics and in, in history in the modern world, and, and in fact the working title for the book when I was writing it was deep connections, and one of the interesting points there was. Today, with kind of modern geopolitics, why is it that China cares so much about Tibet? And, you know, there's the whole kind of kind of human rights questions. There's the Dalai Lama living in exile. But there's a very, very simple reason coming down to the kind of landscape of the earth as to why China cares about Tibet. And it's because the Tibetan plateau, this very high region of land um, associated with the Himalayas and then the crumpling of India into Eurasia, is referred to as the third pole of the planet. There's a lot of ice on the North and South Poles. There's a great deal of ice on the Tibetan plateau as well. And that melts and feeds 10 of the largest rivers around the world. So in a sense, 
China cares about Tibet because it cares about control of water, and particularly in a world with climate change, when you know, rainfall patterns are going to start shifting and agriculture will become a bit less certain, you want to be able to control control those fundamental factors that support your cities and be able to grow food for yourself. Um, I want to talk about the Mediterranean, and you describe it in the book as being you know, particularly tectonically interesting. Yeah. As a place, and actually, just you know, looking at a lot of the maps that you have, you said that you've that you've drawn, whether it's like you know the continental drift maps or maps showing like the extent of you know the the lower sea level stuff, the Mediterranean always seems to be roughly the Mediterranean as we know it now. Yeah. What's so special about that area? So the Mediterranean, interestingly, is is essentially just a puddle, a mere puddle, left over from what was once a, a vast ocean called the Tethys. And since the breakup of the last supercontinent, Pangaea, and then the kind of reshuffling of, of the continents, the Tethys has, has steadily shrunken and disappeared as Africa kind of raced forward up into Eurasia again. And the Mediterranean is basically all that's left of this once vast ocean now. And the Mediterranean has been the the, the kind of crucible, the, the cauldron for a, a huge number of cultures through history of the kind of Greeks and the Romans and and, and the Minoans and all these different cultures that we learn about in, in, in ancient history. But curiously, most of those cultures had all operated. They're all active on the northern coastlines of the Mediterranean. And if you just look at an atlas, just load up Google Earth now and look at the Mediterranean, it's this roughly kind of oval-shaped sea and it's incredibly intricate and detailed along the northern coastlines, but it's around kind of the Greece and, and the Aegean. Um, whereas the African coastline, the, the southern coastline, the southern lip of the Mediterranean, is, is kind of just a bit boring in comparison. So there's clearly a link between those two, two, two things, that the, the activity of cultures and civilizations was dependent on having natural harbours and inlets because maritime uh, activity is a very easy way of trading and moving things around. Whereas the, the, the North African coast is, is plain and doesn't have many harbours for civilizations to rely upon. And what's created that distinction is that tectonic reality that, that is Africa moving north and being subducted beneath Eurasia. So the northern Mediterranean coast is this kind of submerged, drowned landscape of valleys that give you great harbours and, and inlets. Whereas the northern uh, African coastline is being kind of pushed down. It's just kind of straight and then flat. So I love that. It's, it's this really deep connection between a continental collision and plate tectonics that's created a difference in landscapes in two very nearby regions, which had a huge effect on, on us, on, on, on our civilizations and in our cities. And of course, to link that back to something you mentioned in, in the first half, the north side of the Mediterranean is where there are still volcanoes. Yeah, exactly. That's that's where you know Mount Etna and all the other active volcanoes in in, in Europe are today. Is is around that northern coastline of the Mediterranean, and that's basically the top bit of Africa that's melted deep in the interior of the Earth, bubbled back up to the surface, and kind of burped out as, as molten rock as as the magma of a, of a volcanic eruption. So that's a, the ideal place for those early civilizations, you know, the, be it the Minoans or the you know, Romans or whatever. The, but it's also like those civilizations that bore the brunt of, you know, like Pompeii or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So that that continental collision is also what made available a lot of um, vital natural resources such as copper, and particularly for the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. If you want to make bronze for simple tools and, and, and swords, you need um, copper and tin. And copper 
is produced by uh, kind of hydrothermal vents on the seafloor, and then that's where it gets concentrated. So it was that continental collision and the disappearance of this Tethys ocean that we mentioned earlier that made copper available for Bronze Age civilizations like the Minoans in, in, in the Mediterranean. Um, just one other thing before we finish, and I just wanted to talk about the importance of wind. Yeah. Um, so we mentioned again in, in the first part that, you know, the, the changing climate obviously has an effect, the different raising of the sea levels has an effect on things like, you know, the Gulf Stream and sort of ocean currents as well. And and again, part of that is, you know, weather systems that, that go all the way around the earth. And, mm. and tell us something about how that basically, uh, you know, will enable global trade. Yeah, so my, actually my favourite chapter um, from the whole of the book when I was researching and writing it was this one about that deep link between something as fundamental as the circulation patterns in Earth's atmosphere to how that creates these alternating bands of prevailing winds around the world and um, to the trade winds or the westerlies, and then how that, again, over hundreds of years, dictated the patterns of exploration and trade and then ultimately European empire building and the beginnings of globalisation and, and then the modern world that grew out of that. That all comes down just the way that the, the atmosphere happens to turn over because the equator is warmer than the poles and the fact that the Earth is spinning so you get Coriolis forces that, that kind of bend those winds in particular directions. And when the European sailors were first kind of reaching out into the Atlantic um, with the Portuguese and the Spanish and then later the, the, the French, Dutch and, and, and British, they're essentially piecing together these little pieces of, of the jigsaw puzzle of Earth's winds, working out where do I need to go to so the wind will blow in the direction I want to go to reach what I've now discovered is, is America? Or how can I get around the southern tip of Africa to reach India and all the spices that I want to kind of get involved in that trade because a lot of money to be made in there. So there's this deep link between the, just the atmosphere of the earth and the wind patterns and the shape of the world today. Like why is California so important and economically rich today? It's because that's where you reach in a galleon if you leave China and try to cross the Pacific, you know, that, that, that's hundreds of years of history in that simple fact. So I've been talking to Lewis Dart now. We've been talking about his new book, Origins, How the Earth Made Us, which is out now in the UK from Bodley Head. Lewis, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.